Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're privileged to have two former United States senators, Ken Conrad, Democrat of North Dakota, and Rob Portman, Republican of Ohio. They've been lending their voices in a bipartisan manner to the need for a new fiscal commission to propose solutions to our nation's unsustainable budget outlook. Our two guests today have extensive experience on federal budget issues. Uh, Senator Conrad served uh, in the United States Senate from 1992 to 2013. He served as chairman of the Senate Budget Committee And uh, he also served as chairman of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Taxation, uh, IRS Oversight, and Long-Term Growth. Conrad was a member of the National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, otherwise known as the Bowles-Simpson Commission. And before being elected to the Senate, he served as tax commissioner of North Dakota. He currently serves on the boards of Genworth Financial and the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Senator Portman has served in three presidential administrations. He held two cabinet-level jobs in the George W. Bush administration. There, he was director of the Office of Management and Budget and U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, In the legislative branch, he served two terms in the United States Senate and six terms in the House of Representatives. He played a key role in many foreign policy issues, by the way, as a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and was co-chair and founder of the Senate Ukraine Caucus. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, Currently, he's a distinguished visiting fellow in the practice of public policy at the American Enterprise Institute and serves as the founder of the Portman Center for Policy Solutions at the University of Cincinnati. And since this show airs in New Hampshire, I should note that Senator Portman received his B.A. in anthropology from Dartmouth College. So, and during the, converse, during the conversation today are Tori Gorman, Policy Director for the Concord Coalition and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. So, Senators Conrad and Portman, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Great to be with you. You know, sometimes when we do these shows, I wonder if we really want to face the future. Um, but, <laughs> but that aside, um, uh, as, as both of you have been a warning, it's imperative uh, that we do so. So, you know, I want to talk about the idea of a fiscal commission because that's something that you've been talking about. You've written op-eds about it. You've appeared before the uh, House Budget Committee to talk about it. And, you know, we can dive into some of the pros and cons and details. But first, I'd just like to set the stage by asking you both, uh, you know, why why do you think we have a fiscal problem? I mean, what, what is the, the fiscal problem that needs to be addressed? We can get into the political problem. But just, you know, what keeps you up at night thinking about the budget? And I don't know who to go to first because we've got a Senate Budget Committee chair and an <laughs> OMB director. And a, I, I so I'm going to go by alphabetical order. So Senator <laughs> Conrad, <laughs> we'll start with you. What keeps you up at night about the debt? 
you know, not so long ago, um, one of the military leaders of the country said the debt is the threat. Uh, we're $33 trillion in debt, well over 120% of our gross domestic product. Um, almost any economist would say to you, that's a warning signal. It's not as though you just fall off a cliff, but it leads to a long, slow decline if you don't manage your finances, just like a family, just like a business, so too a country, although we're different because we can print money. That has its own consequence. So here we are, the debt and the deficits keep rising, keep rising dramatically. Uh, the real deficit in 2023 was almost double 2022. We've been leaving this up to the regular process for years, uh, not since the Clinton administration have we balanced the budget. And now we're in hyperspace in terms of deficits and debt. That threatens our long-term economic security. It threatens our uh, national defense. It threatens the position that we hold in the world. So this has real consequence to real people. Social Security and Medicare, the two largest programs of the federal government, are both headed for insolvency. The trustees of those programs tell us Medicare will be insolvent in 2033. Social Security will be insolvent by 2032. Even some estimates it could happen somewhat sooner. So what difference would that make? To every Social Security recipient, that means they would get hit with a 24% cut. Think about that. Every Social Security recipient by 2032 would face a 24% cut in their annual benefits. Medicare would no longer uh, be able to meet its promises to pay for the medical bills of those who are Medicare and Medicaid uh, eligible. That is the reality of what we confront. Those who say do nothing are saying that it's acceptable to then have a 24% cut because that's what being doing nothing means. So look, we've got a problem. It's clear. It's a clear and present danger to our national economic security, our national defense, and it's time to act. The longer we wait, the more draconian the solutions will have to be. That's a mathematical certainty. Senator Portman. Well, uh, my, my colleague and friend, Ken Conrad, has said it so well. Um, I would just add a couple of things. One, there's a certain time when you have a confluence of the political will in Congress and the tipping point on the debt and deficit. We've seen this in the past. Bob, you mentioned what happened back in late 90s, 2000, where we came together. Um, we're at that point again. And the tipping point, Again, Ken Conrad has just explained well. I would go a little further and say we're already there in terms of the impact on the economy. If you look at the interest rates that we're facing today, uh, anybody uh, listening or watching who is trying to get a mortgage right now or finance a car will tell you, you know, seven, eight percent interest is uh, is a killer, and it is in part because of this fiscal crisis that we found ourselves in. I would. Remind us all that there are only three credit rating, rating agencies, and all three of the credit rating agencies have said we're in trouble because of uh, Washington's inability to get a handle on the debt and deficit. And they have specifically talked about Congress. Most recently, uh, Fitch downgraded, but also Moody's has threatened to downgrade. And if we go through another government shutdown, which is not unlikely here uh, in January, 
Um, I believe that, you know, Moody's will also downgrade. And what does that mean? That just means higher interest rates for, for all of us. I think we're already there in the sense that the, the debt and deficit is affecting the lives of the people of North Dakota and Ohio and, and New Hampshire and all around the country. Second, I would say that back when you and I, Bob, were doing the fiscal wake-up tour, uh, you know, we, we had an opportunity to go around the country and talk uh, specifically about what the consequences are. And Senator Conrad has, has stated it well in terms of the impact on Social Security recipients. Um, and I think that's one that every academic and, and uh, you know, economist would, would agree with. But it's much broader than that. It really is our place in the world. It is what uh, our adversaries are, are looking at very closely. Are we going to be able to dig ourselves out of this hole? Do we have a policy to do so? So this is, this is time for another fiscal wake-up tour to explain that to the American people. I think probably a commission, although it would be looked at for policy recommendations, is equally important to explain the problem better to the American people in a way they can understand, in a way that they can appreciate. Because let's be honest, uh, with low interest rates, uh, you know, we just kept spending and spending and spending, and it seemed like it wasn't affecting the economy much. Now with higher interest rates, it's very different, and we're spending so much more every year. In fact, we'll pay more in interest over the next several years, we're told, just interest on the debt than our entire defense budget. So the comment made earlier that a former Joint Chiefs of Staff said that uh, the number one threat to our national security is the rising debt. Uh, this this impacts us directly in terms of our ability to spend money on our priorities if we don't have the money because we're paying more and more interest. So time for a fiscal wake-up tour. Just thinking here, uh, Bob, as we uh, talk about this, it probably makes sense for the commission to issue some, you know, if it is uh, a statutory commission and it's designed in the way we've talked about, to send a message to Congress and to the American people as to what the problem is first. But perhaps there could be in parallel a fiscal wake-up tour uh, while the commission is doing its work. And that fiscal wake-up tour could once again wake people up from their slumber about this issue because it does affect them. It does affect their family and certainly their future generations of, of their family. Uh, so I think we're there. I think we're at that tipping point as a percent of GDP to go over 100% was always viewed to be uh, a, a tipping point by economists. And I think we're at a political point where there does seem to be some bipartisan interest in taking this issue and really addressing it in a fair, objective way uh, using an outside commission. You know, you anticipated a question I was going to get to later, which was whether the commission should have some sort of public engagement component to it. And because uh, I, I can remember the event that we did at the John Glenn School, uh, yeah. which featured you and, uh, and former Senator John Glenn. Uh, yeah. And it was very well attended. Uh, you were OMB director at the time. I think that's a good model. We did it. We did a lot of the events at uh, colleges and universities because we wanted to be in a setting where young people would be involved. And so you get a mix of, of folks. And we're going to have to take our first break here. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future. And we're talking with former senators Kent Conrad and Rob Portman. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former U.S. Senators Kent Conrad and Rob Portman 
about the possibility of a new fiscal commission. Uh, Tori, let me turn to you now for a question. Sure. To our distinguished uh, guests today, thank you, Senators, for, for taking time with us today. Uh, the last time the federal government experimented with a fiscal commission was in 2010 and the uh, Simpson-Bowles Commission, which uh, the broad name was National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform, but shorthandedly referred to as Simpson-Bowles. Um, ultimately, the commission was not successful in voting out uh, proposals for, for Congress to, to debate and consider. I'm wondering what your thoughts are uh, in terms of what did we learn from that commission that we might want to do differently this time around, either in terms of how it's structured or how decisions were made. Um, I'm going to reverse the alphabet this time. Senator Porter, would you like to go first? Well, sure. And I really am interested to hear what uh, my colleague uh, Ken Conrad says, because he was actually on that commission. Um, I think three things were learned. <laughs> One is to have a super, super majority of 13 or 15 members is very difficult to obtain. Um, so I don't know um, in the entire history of that I understand there was one senator who insisted on it, but that was a mistake in my view. Uh, I think it should be a qualified majority of some kind, either a straight majority or, as you've seen in the House and Senate versions of the uh, new legislation, the Fiscal Commission Act and the Fiscal Stability Act, they have said that it's a majority, but you have to have at least three members of, of the other party. In other words, there has to be some bipartisanship to uh, significant bipartisanship to the recommendation. That makes more sense than to have the uh, super, super majority. Second, it was not statutory. And that's because it, it, it was attempted, as I understand it, but it was not successful. And so it was appointed by the president. Uh, that makes it harder for Congress to feel they have a stake in it. And then the third point is specifically, it did not have expedited procedures and an up or down vote for the recommendations. And, you know, that's, this is a tricky issue. I know some in Congress have concerns about that. But if you look at the Again, Fiscal Commission Act has been introduced and the Fiscal Stability Act has been introduced in the House and Senate, respectively. Uh, they do have this fast track authority and the ability to get a vote uh, in the House and Senate. I think that's one of the most important parts of a commission. It gives some political cover, frankly, to members on some tough votes. Uh, we have to acknowledge these will be tough votes, although the need for it is urgent and the vast majority of the American people believe that when told the facts. But I do think those are three changes that that could be made in, in a statutory commission along the lines of what's been introduced and what Senator Conrad and I have been talking about. So I agree with Senator Portman entirely on his points. I think he has hit the nail on the head. First problem was the requirement for a super majority to be assured of a vote on the floor, uh, to have a statutory commission rather than a presidentially named commission. Uh, when the statutory commission failed, and it only failed because eight of our original co-sponsors, think of this, eight of our original co-sponsors voted against a statutory commission on the day the vote was held. They were original co-sponsors. They voted no. Why? Because they were under a threat that if they went forward and voted yes for the legislation they had sponsored, they would get primary opponents. And so eight of our original co-sponsors voted no. That meant we could not have a statutory commission that guaranteed a vote, an up or down vote, but we had to have a presidentially authorized commission, which we then persuaded President Obama to appoint. Um, it is so important that you be assured a vote. Um, there shouldn't have been a super, super majority. They, there was a requirement that we have not just a 60% uh, 
but we had to have a super, super majority of almost 80% um, for the legislation to advance. <laughs> that was a very serious mistake. I argued strenuously against it, but I uh, did not prevail. So those are key points. One other that I would add, I think all parties have to be at the table. Uh, in most of the legislation that's advancing now, it's just a congressional commission. I think it's imperative that the White House be involved as well, because at the end of the day, this is going to require action by the House, the Senate, and the White House. And so if we want to be in on the landing, we got to be in on the takeoff. And uh, I think it's just very important that the White House be included. We don't know who will control the White House. We don't know whether the Republicans will or the Democrats will. We're saying that those who have a responsibility to be part of any final solution have to be in on the proposal. Senator Conrad, what do you think about this idea of parties appointing members of the commission from the opposite party? So Democrats appointing Republican members, Republican members appointing Democrats to a commission. Is that too gimmicky by half or does that have some sense to it? Well, it has some sense to it, but I don't think <laughs> I, I don't think it'll succeed. You know, uh, the leadership jealously protects their their position, and I, I think it would be nigh impossible to get them to agree to such a thing. I, I would agree with that. I think I think the key on the members is to have the leadership have buy-in and. The members have buy-in. I would even hope that it would be, you know, ranking in chairs of the Budget Committee, Appropriations Committee at that level. And I think that's very important because when you go to the Congress, as Ken Conrad will tell you, it's really important to have people who are all in and willing to twist arms with their colleagues, you know, to, to move it forward. So I think it needs to be people who are viewed uh, as, uh, you know, representing the Republican side and representing the Democratic side. So I would, I would not, uh, I would not support the sort of cross uh, appointments um, cross pollination <laughs> cross pollination i mean it's great for a, for a commission that isn't intended to actually come up with a final solution in congress um, because it would be very interesting to see what what that commission came up with to be very honest i think or very uh, very helpful maybe that's another project but for this project it has to be members and and for that matter the outside experts who are really committed to getting to yes and um, uh, the, the, the one thing that i would hope that would be asked of any member who wants to join us that question. Are you committed to finding common ground here? Because I think that's our biggest problem right now in the legislature. And we don't want to have this spillover into the commission is that, uh, you know, everybody is his or her own uh, celebrity uh, uh, member of Congress. And uh, it's harder and harder to find this common ground as a result. Finally, I do disagree with having the Biden administration have a representative unless there's a balance. I think it needs to be 50-50 Democrat, Republican, given where we are as a country right now, that the country is divided, the Congress is divided. Uh, you know, both House and Senate are on a, on a on a narrow edge of majorities right right now. So we need to figure that out. And then, of course, it would report, uh, at least the ones that I've seen, and I think this makes sense, during the lame duck after the, uh, the election. So you don't know which you know, which administration to engage. Maybe there's a way to do it and getting what I think Senator Conrad is getting at in part, which is to have a, a statutory requirement that the Office of Management and Budget and the Treasury Department uh, be involved, and maybe the Fed as well, uh, providing expertise so that you have some buy-in from at least the, uh, the career people who are going to be there administration to administration. Anyway, that's a couple of comments. Steve. 
Yeah. So, Senators, you both recently testified before the House Budget Committee about a fiscal commission. And a- after watching the hearing, uh, it seems to me you, you, you know, the, the next fiscal commission may have a bigger problem than we've seen in the past. I mean, traditionally, the, the Social Security Medicare trust funds have been viewed as sort of a warning sign that when the trust funds go broke, you have to do something to fix the programs. But at the hearing, several members suggested that you know, it was no big deal if the trust fund goes broke, we can just stuff it with general revenue. We can you know pretend there's a higher interest rate on the trust fund bonds. We can just find some way to gimmick it up and not have to you know have the trust fund go broke, and you don't have to actually reform the system. Are you worried that that members are going to be tempted to take the easy way out? And unlike the Greenspan Commission, when the trust fund was going to go broke, we raised the payroll tax, we raised the retirement age, we made real reform to Social Security. Now it seems some members are willing to entertain the idea that we can just phony up the trust fund with general revenue and call it a day. I mean, are, are you worried about that? I'm very worried about that. Uh, it was very striking to me that members, some of whom I have great respect for, uh, were seemingly open to uh, the magic asterisk in which you just say, oh, there's a problem, but not really. We'll just erase it or we'll look beyond it or we won't deal with the underlying problem of a mismatch between money coming in and money going out. At the end of the day, the numbers don't lie. The harsh reality is we are spending much more than we are taking in. And no magic asterisk is going to change that. It takes real policy changes in order to um, solve this problem. And you know, there's an economic reality here. And the economic reality is um, expressed in what Senator Portman referred to earlier as the effect on the national economy. Interest rates are rising. In part, they're rising because of deficits and debt. And economists warn of this and have warned about it for years. So, hey, um, let's pay attention to reality. And let's deal with the real issues and not just try to escape responsibility by the magic asterisk. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former U.S. Senators Kent Conrad and Rob Portman about the possibility of a new fiscal commission. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former U.S. Senators Kent Conrad and Rob Portman about the possibility of a new fiscal commission. And when we left off, uh, Senator Portman, you were uh, going to comment on uh, Steve Robinson's question. Yeah, Steve asked about the hearing that uh, Senator Conrad and I attended. We were witnesses and one of the other witnesses and a couple of the members said, well, why don't we just continue to spend money from the general fund on Social Security, ignore the law um, and ignore the fiscal reality that if we don't solve these problems, our country will you know, be, be bankrupt at some point. And and the the answer, I think, uh, was was uh, that, you know, Senator Conrad was shocked, as was I, that members who understand what the consequences are here would would say that it's an easy uh, cop out maybe, uh, but it really isn't uh, because people people get it. They know that's not that's not realistic, and they know that they're going to be harmed by it. 
the 24% cut in Social Security benefits will happen under current law. But second, I wanted to make the point that the default in Congress these days is to do nothing. <laughs> and we see it with regard to the appropriations bills and the reality that eventually we uh, either have a government shutdown or do a continuing resolution, uh, you know, which is the default and which is uh, a fallback. And you know, to actually pass something, you have to have the votes. You have to have 60 votes in the Senate, a supermajority for anything to do with Social Security. You actually can't do it under uh, so-called reconciliation, even if you wanted to, uh, which is a rare uh, process in any case. So my, my point is for those who say, well, let's just find general revenue money and throw it into these trust funds. That requires a change in law that I think would be very difficult, probably impossible to get through the congressional process as we see it these days. So you're, you're really taking a huge risk there with the American people and, and their futures. That was the point I wanted to make. Um, I wanted to uh, just get a couple of criteria questions for the for the commission, and I can sort of lump them together and uh, and, and get your impression. I, uh, I mean, one is that all options would be on the table. I, I assume that that's something that you agree on. But another, and another one that we've already talked about is the um, the up or down vote. One thing is, do you think the commission should have a goal in mind, like a, a debt to GDP ratio or something like that, or or just go into it with the idea that they're trying to come up with something that would improve the long-term fiscal outlook? We did, in uh, Simpson Bowles, we did set targets for revenue and spending, and we did set a target for debt uh, to GDP, but those, those weren't handed to us. Uh, that was the work of the commission. Um, and it was um, not formalized. It was an informal understanding of what we were trying to reach. So I do think it's a very important you have targets. Uh, I'm not so sure it's, um, it's a good idea to hand it the commission. I think uh, it should be part of the work of the commission. And I also think so something that Senator Portman said is incredibly important. This needs to be used in part as a, a method of educating people as to the significance of the problem or the consequences of a failure to act. That um, is hugely important because the American people, they got lots of other things they're worried about. They're worried about paying the mortgage. They're worried about getting the kids off to college. They're worried about uh, health issues of their, of their parents or their grandparents. They've got all these things that um, take their attention. And of course, we also have all these, what I call side issues um, that seem to consume Congress, but we're not being uh, paying sufficient attention to these things that really matter to the economic lives of the American family. So uh, I, I do think this educational effort, uh, a barnstorming of the country, uh, addressing the problem, describing it, and coming up with, with alternative solutions that people can understand and ultimately support. And just a quick, uh, I want to go back to Tory for a second, but uh, Senator Portman, when you were U.S. Trade Representative, you negotiated deals that went to Congress uh, on an up or down vote. Uh, did you find that that was a, you know, no amendments, up or down, take it or leave it. Did you find that that was an important uh, element? It was absolutely necessary. You know, no uh, other country would negotiate with us without knowing we had that. They didn't want to be uh, nickel and dimed uh, through amendments once they come up with their last and best offer in a, in a trade agreement. So they wanted to know that they would have a good chance of, uh, of getting a vote. 
one or one way or the other. Uh, and as you know, we've had some very close calls, but in the end, those trade agreements passed uh, 15 times. I think trade promotion authority has been used, which is what that that uh, supermajority uh, uh, is. So it, it takes you away from uh, a certain amount of politics and provides some cover just as a commission would. And then getting back to your other point, Bob, about whether there should be a fiscal measure I think, uh, as Senator Conrad has said, that's very helpful. And uh, it sounds like in their commission, uh, Simpson-Bowles, they, they did it on their own. I noticed that, again, in the Fiscal Commission Act introduced in the House and the Fiscal Stability Act introduced in the Senate, that they have similar fiscal measures that they put in place. It is uh, to get the debt down to 100% of GDP uh, within 10 years uh, in the Senate version and 15 years in the House version, roughly. And that seems <laughs> sort of a minimum. To get it down to 100%, but it also seems practical to me, and that's you know over 10 or 15 years, and you would hope it would be on a, a longer-term trajectory to really deal with the longer-term uh, issues related to an aging population and the way in which uh, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security are working. So, I think you do need a measure like that in order to make the tough decisions. It's kind of like having a balanced budget, which of course we don't have and can't have unless we change the constitution. You need some sort of a measurement. And you see cities and states, you know, making tough decisions all the time because they have a measurement, which is a balance. So I think that's important. Additionally, the seventy-five-year solvency of the trust funds that might be a good thing to add because you could have this hundred percent of GDP and still not get at the bigger problem, which is the trust funds. Steve, you have a yeah, just so question? quickly to follow up. Um, now, I've seen reports that members of Congress are more likely to get defeated in a primary than they are in the general election, which suggests that, you know, a lot of congressional districts are very polarized. So members are afraid to compromise with the other side because they'll get a primary opponent. And so, you know, I'm wondering if the bigger challenge we face in getting a, getting a deal here is the, the lack of willingness to compromise. And, you know, does that suggest maybe we need some other reforms first to do budget reform, like, for example, if we had more competitive districts, if we did congressional redistricting or something that members knew that they had to work with the middle and they had to work across the aisle because their districts required compromise and bipartisanship as opposed to the gerrymandered districts in which all you do is, you know, you sort of sing to your base and claim you're going to wait for a majority so that your side can win as opposed to trying to cut a deal and compromise now. You know, the thing is, um, my least favorite word in the English language is wait. That That is, you know, in Congress, there's always this tendency to kick the can down the road, kick it down again, kick it down again, wait, wait, wait. What are we waiting for? Um, I, I'd hate to, to add another step in between. I think we got, we've got a problem. It's looming. We require... Uh, immediate attention. The longer we wait, the more draconian the solutions have to be. Uh, while all those things would be desirable, uh, I think the problem is now. We need to have solutions now, and people are going to have to stand up. If we're going to be successful, people have to put the future of the country ahead of their political future. Maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist, but I still believe there are members of great character on both sides who see the threat and who are willing to stand up. Steve, I, I would say, I would agree with everything that, that uh, Ken Conrad just said. I would say that your your broader concern is real, but that those solutions are going to take uh, 
a lot of time. Uh, and some of them, as you know, relate to constitutional prerogatives of state legislatures to draw lines and, and not uh, the federal government and the, the courts are ruling on that right now. Uh, but it's it's not possible, in my view, to make those kinds of changes uh, in the short period of time that we have before this debt and deficit really swallows swallows our, our country. And so we're at a moment in time where we've got to move and move quickly. Uh, I do think, to your question and to Tories, uh, to throw something else out that's, you know, a tough one to, to, to answer. If the administrations, uh, 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 the Biden administration, and if the Trump campaign, let's say, if he's the nominee or if it's someone else, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, whoever it is, uh, choose to comment on this uh, commission, that could also be uh, helpful or damaging, depending on what they say. I would hope that both would view this as an opportunity to look at an objective thorough analysis after the election and in effect take them off the hook of having to make some very tough decisions by having uh, you know congress take the lead and therefore at, at a minimum um you know not comment uh, uh, and of course it'd be even better if they could say things positive about that commission as it does its work because the commission proposals all uh, envisioned that it would report after the election in 2024 so sometime say november which is what the two uh, acts that have been introduced say. And so that to me is, is the most interesting political <laughs> issue that we would have, because as Senator Conrad said earlier, uh, you know, when you had these outside groups threatening to primary people and so on, it can get pretty tough. If you have instead the sense that we're going to actually give this commission the opportunity to do its work. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they may support it, they may not. But uh, that to me is the most important political consideration. And uh, again, I thank you guys for what you do every day to fight this fight um, and to try to educate people as to both the existing uh, consequences, because they're, they're there. It's hurting our economy right, to, right, right now, interest rates, inflation, and so on, but also the uh, incredibly damaging consequences if we don't act. So uh, keep it up. And uh, my hope is that this commission can play a huge role to move that ball forward. Happy to uh, help in, in any way we can, and we so appreciate your efforts. Uh, that's all the time we have for this segment with uh, Senators Ken Conrad and Rob Portman. Uh, we've been discussing the importance of a fiscal commission to deal with our nation's long-term economic problems. Tori and Steve and I will be right back uh, with another segment after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson and I are talking about uh, some follow-up from the conversation that we just had with Senators Ken Conrad and Rob Portman about the need for a new fiscal commission. And, you know, uh, Tori and Steve, one of the things that really stuck out for me in that conversation is they both really made a strong pitch for a public education component mm -hmm. to the commission. And, of course, you know, that's music to our ears because Concord Coalition has been arguing that for years and, right. uh, you know, had an actual fiscal wake up tour, which uh, Senator Portman referred to, uh, you know, from 2005 to 2010. So I was really intrigued by that. And, and Ken Conrad made the point that there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, basic things about the budget that people don't understand because they've got other things to do. And so a fiscal wake-up tour would actually be 
quite helpful. So I was thinking, and we 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 did some quick brainstorming over the break of <laughs> in the break. Of, what are some of the myths in the federal budget that a a public education component could uh, could address? And uh, I, I, Tori, I'll begin with you. Uh, I mean, if 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 there were some sort of fiscal wake up tour, public education event uh, component mm-hmm. to the commission, where could they dive in? Sure. I, I mean, obviously, you're going to have a commission that talks about the drivers of our debt and deficits. But, you know, I, I think it's really important that we dispel some of these myths that develop in the, the Ethernet, if you will, uh, of the world. And I think the, the one that I always come across and the one that really just makes my head explode is uh, people that think that uh, we can balance the budget purely by eliminating foreign aid. Um, in the first place, you know, foreign aid is not a driver of our, our deficits and our debt. Um, foreign aid accounts for about 1% in a typical year, about 1% of all federal spending and only about 3.5% of discretionary spending. Now, obviously, the war in Ukraine and Israel sort of altered those numbers a little bit uh, last year and they may going forward. You know, but those are, are geopolitical necessities that we have to deal with. But I think also the one thing that people don't realize is, is why we give money to other countries. And there are some really, really good reasons that I think people need to understand. First is is national security. When we give foreign aid to other countries, it helps build stability around the world and counter global threats by you know, promoting prosperity around the world, public health, environmental protection, and the military readiness of our allies, you know, it, it helps everybody get along better and create a better world for everybody. It also, foreign, foreign assistance also helps our own commercial interests here at home by supporting economic growth abroad. It expands the trade capacity for U.S. goods and services here. So, you know, sort of it helps us over there. <laughs> uh, but then lastly, the humanitarian interest side of this, you know, by providing food, shelter, and other basic assistance to those in need, whether it's from national disasters, war, uh, uh, whatever, um, that type of assistance, that reflects our values of a, as Americans. And it, it reflects our role as a global leader. This this myth that we can balance the budget by eliminating foreign aid, mathematically, it's impossible. I don't think it's a good policy decision. Steve, uh, what uh, what what myths come to your mind? <laughs> well, one one of the one of the myths that we talked about in the previous episode is a lot of people think, well, you know, Social Security and Medicare are funded with a payroll tax, and so in theory, workers are paying into the system and. When they retire, they expect their benefits because they think in their mind that they paid taxes and therefore they're entitled to their benefits. And so there's a lot of opposition to cutting Social Security and Medicare. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, those programs are not fully funded by the tax on workers. I mean, Medicare, for example, Part A Medicare is funded by a payroll tax, but that's only 40% of the program. You also have Part B and Part D. And Part B and D, which is physician services and prescription drugs, those are funded by a premium that individuals pay, beneficiaries, but the premium only covers 25% of the cost. So you're talking about roughly $600 billion for Part A, I'm sorry, $400 billion for Part A and $600 billion for Part B and D, and beneficiaries only pay $150 billion of that $600 billion. So, you know, the argument that you can't or shouldn't cut Social Security and Medicare because 
the beneficiaries have already paid for their benefits. I mean, it simply isn't true. And I mean, even the case of Social Security, I mean, I recently wrote an issue brief about taxing Social Security benefits. And the reason that we tax Social Security benefits is if you add up the taxes that individuals pay over their lifetime and compare that to their lifetime benefits, their share of the payroll tax only funds about 15% of the benefits. So the other 85% of the benefits are funded out of the employer share of the payroll tax or the interest that, that accrues on the trust fund, which is really just general revenue. So, you know, there's there's very little argument to be made that the beneficiaries have paid for their benefits. I mean, you go back to Ida Mae Fuller, the first social security beneficiary <laughs> who retired, you know, she lived to be a hundred. She paid $20 in payroll taxes and collected $20,000 in benefits. Clear, clearly, she didn't pay for her benefits. And she's representative of, of multiple generations of the first beneficiaries who paid very, very little toward the cost of their benefits. All right. So let's let uh, Tori uh, got some other uh, uh, sure. parts of the budget that you get undue attention. Sure. Yeah, I think waste, fraud and abuse always gets attention and, and rightfully so. And I will say, you know, we have an organization, an agency, the Government Accountability Office, that does a great job of putting information forward to members of Congress about programs that are duplicative, uh, improper payments, you know, programs that are either, you know, giving benefits to the wrong people or, or giving them the wrong amount. Um, they also produce an annual high risk list. These are pro programs that have a lot of mistakes, a lot of fraud. Um, and and so there is a a, a, a an unusual <laughs> high, high a tremendous amount of information out there for for lawmakers to act upon to eliminate waste fraud and abuse and unfortunately congress doesn't always do a good job of following through on the information that they asked for you know congress you know they they the members of congress like to get all riled up with righteous indignation and say waste fraud and abuse waste fraud and abuse we want this report we want that report and, and gao says fine here it is and then they don't do anything with it and the reason why they don't do anything with it is a lot of times these are programs that benefit constituents in their district and so they don't want to cut this program. They don't want to examine that program. They just they just want to be able to divert attention from the need to raise taxes or cut benefits to oh, let's just blame waste, fraud, and abuse. You know, it's 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 basically a red herring, in in my opinion. I mean, I think there's you know there are obviously things can do. When you took a, take a look at you know GAO's high risk list, for example, four of like the top ten are Department Department of Defense programs. Department of Defense still cannot pass an internal audit, right? They're making progress, but they still can't do it. So yes, we've got problems. Yes, we need to do things about it. You know, GAO is there to make it possible. We just need lawmakers to act. And it's, I mean, GAO has estimates, but uh, even if they did everything, you'd be saving tens of billions, I think, Um you know, it doesn't do much to cover the multi-trillion dollar deficits. We got to wrap up here, but I yeah. know there's one last thing you wanted to mention, your favorite uh, tax policy. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 the argument is that we need more revenue. And if you ask the general public, should we tax the rich more? The answer is always, oh, yes, the rich don't pay their fair share. They should always pay more. If you ask them how much should the rich pay, those answers generally fall in the range of 25, 30%, something that you know would, would be reasonable. And when you look at the numbers, that's roughly what the, the top 1% pay. They about 25% of their income. I mean, there, there are a small number of people who don't pay taxes. 
Um, according to the IRS, there's 15,000 people who make over 200,000 a year who don't pay U.S. taxes. But if you include worldwide taxes, that number goes to 5,000. In other words, two-thirds of the people who don't pay U.S. taxes don't pay because they pay taxes to foreign countries, and we allow them to deduct the foreign taxes from their U.S. taxes so that they don't pay U.S. taxes. So, you know, there's still 5,000 people who don't pay any taxes, but that's not, you know, even if you got all those people together in a room and tax them all, again, we're we're talking tens of billions, not trillions. And, and that's the, the size of the problem relative to the proposed solution of taxing the rich is, you know, there, there's just a big gap there. Well, those are some proposed uh, ideas for a, uh, a new fiscal commission to uh, help talk about on the road to do a barnstorming event and help people understand the contours of the budget. Well, that's all the time we have for uh, this week. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been talking about the possibility of a new federal fiscal commission. Our guests earlier in the program were former Senators Kent Conrad and Rob Portman. Tune in again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. 